Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Lord, we turn our hearts to your presence in the Eucharist. Thank you for bringing us here together this evening. Please open our hearts and our minds to learn all that you would have us learn for your greater honor and glory. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, our Guardian Angels, for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Thanks so much for coming back, or um, if you're coming, coming for the first time. We uh, have some exciting things before us. I always like to invoke the, the guardian angels um, before beginning to, to think about these things. Bear in mind that um, St. Thomas says, that St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that the guardian angels can help us understand, can help us understand better. In several ways they can do that. But they are ready at hand to help us go in especially to the mysteries of God. So when we're trying to understand something that pertains to the importance of human life, what greater thing would our guardian angels want to help us do than to help us see more clearly the truth, period, these key truths. So, okay, Plato's Republic and the discovery of virtue. Last time, we talked about how there are two great questions in Plato's Republic. Uh, the first is what is justice, and along with that, the other cardinal virtues. And then the other great question is, is the just life truly worth living? So what did we do last time? Just a quick, quick review of what we did last time. We focused on the discovery of justice and the other cardinal virtues, which Socrates, Plato do by building a city, and then city meaning a political society, looking in that political society to try to find these human excellences called virtue. And then by making an analogy between political society and the individual soul, to be able to then say what those virtues look like in the individual soul, matching up to what it's like in the city. So we saw wisdom, which is also called prudence in our great tradition, a knowledge of what is most important regarding how we should live. So prudence slash wisdom is to see the higher things in such a way as to understand how we should act in all aspects of our life. Wisdom is a guiding knowledge here, wisdom in the sense of prudence. There's an even higher wisdom yet that's just a wisdom to understand the things of God, things that we seek to know for their own sake that aren't truths about how to live. But this wisdom in the sense of prudence is a wisdom about how to live. And so it's insight into the fundamental meaning of human life so that we can give the right order, give the right direction to our life. Just as in a city, the rulers must have wisdom and understanding of the most important things of what is first, what is higher. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, St. Thomas, they're always all about order. It's all about hierarchy. One of my favorite lines from Plato from another text called the Apology. Socrates says, the wise man treats the higher things as though they are higher and the lower as though they are lower. It's such an incredibly simple, simple point. Another way you could put that is the wise man knows how to put first things first. He treats what's more important as though it's more important. It's one thing to know what's more important. It's another thing to act 
as though that is what is most important. So the wise and prudent man, we see in his actions his understanding of what comes first. And wisdom is always an understanding of what comes first, whether on the broad political level or in our individual lives. Then we had courage, and he particularly emphasized how it's a power of preservation, a power of what, what does it preserve? Really what it preserves is the insights of wisdom, this insight of what is most important or not. Now, courage here is just closely related, but it's a different virtue to be able to preserve that understanding even in the face of what is most difficult. Right? And, and the, the, the beauty of courage is, is, that the, is that the power and importance of those higher things really comes through when you see that a soul is willing to endure great suffering and not be changed in one's convictions due to that suffering. Courage endures great things to still stand by and live by what is first is what is first, even when it demands much of me. So in the courage we have that particularly instantiated in the soldiers who are willing to fight and to die to overcome their fear, to endure great suffering in order to preserve the social order. And then we see this in the individual soul who is, again, willing to suffer, willing to have great pain, willing to endure great sorrow, all in defense of what is true and what is more important. Then we have temperance, or what's also called moderation, when the lower desires are governed by reason. The beautiful thing is that not only are the lower, it's not that the lower desires are smacked down, the lower desires are literally put in their place. There is a place, and we're going to talk about this here more today, this beautiful aspect, one of the, I think one of the most beautiful points that we'll see here that comes out in Plato so well, I don't want to spill the beans too early, but it already it's implied in the, in the notion of temperance. When lower things, when our, de when our desires for lower things are transformed and are well-ordered, are governed by the wisdom of reason, then, and then alone, do they flourish and blossom. So we'll see one of the most astounding things, it's, just, it's such a dramatic truth, is that it, it's in fact the man who knows how to order and discipline his lower desires, who most knows how to enjoy them. By saying no when appropriate, you in fact are the only one who knows how to say yes. And so indeed, as we'll see, the, the incredible principle is that the wise man gets to have all higher and lower. He doesn't ultimately have to give up the lower simply by disciplining the lower and subordinating it to the higher, treating the lower as though it is lower, but seeing in its place, you have it too. But we're coming to that. So be surprised when I say that again in a few minutes. <laughs> or look interested again. And then we have justice. When each part of the soul, Socrates and Plato's way of treating is a little bit different than Aristotle's and St. Thomas's, but it, it, it comes, I think, ultimately to the same thing. But I'm going to stay true to right now we're studying Plato's, and we're going to say it the way that, that um, Plato would say it. Each part of the soul does its proper work. When each part of the soul is doing its proper work, everything is in its place. You have the proper interior order of the soul. This flows over into then rendering what is due to others. Beautiful aspect of this kind of an inside, interior aspect of virtue, and then the exterior manifestation of it. And this particularly comes through in Plato's ren rendering here of justice as fundamentally an interior ordering. Remember the great line from last time? And only then does he act. Having, having disciplined himself, having achieved the interior order, it's then that we can turn to the exterior forum and treat other people, relate to other people, enter into relationship with other people in a real way. 
be able to meet them for who they are, where they are, is the man of interior discipline and order, once again, alone, who's able to do that. And that's another, another fundamental, fundamental point of the day will be ultimately virtue is what empowers human relationship. It's, it's one of my absolute favorite points. It comes out again and again in those who are wise. So I can I front load it and, and, and say it again here. Only to the extent that we're virtuous are we able to thrive in our human relationships. So often we try in life to deny that. We hope it's not case the case, but it's not true. It's only to the extent that we achieve a certain character that we can ever be for our loved ones what we want, indeed what we need to be for them. So again, we have that inside and on the outside, the interior order of soul when we have things in order. This is, this is why, as a word, it matters what we do when we're alone. It matters where our desires are. Have we disciplined ourselves? Remember that last thing from last time was the analogy, health is to the body as justice is to the soul. It's, it's so simple, it's so cute, it's so powerful. More to the point, it's so true. Health is to the body as justice is to the soul. Justice is to be healthy in the most important way. And, and so Plato simply points out in this great analogy, health, isn't health really when each part of the body is doing what it should and not doing what it shouldn't do? It's really a matter of harmony and order, each aspect of the body in its place. If our kidneys are kind of going off and doing something they're not supposed to do, we have a problem. Well, likewise in the soul, when there's that, when there's that order of each thing being in its place, this is what he's calling justice. And he said, this, this is the healthy, this is the thriving soul. And we connected this last time with the beautiful point of there's an objectivity to justice. Just as there's an objectivity to the health of the body. Not that, it's, not that it's absolutely identical between all people. There's, there's room for some difference between bodily constitutions. Fundamentally, human health is universal. That's why there can be a science of it. Well, likewise, there's a science of the health of the soul. And that's moral philosophy which is all about, naturally speaking, theologically, supernaturally, be moral theology. But we're doing, we're doing philosophy, we're doing, we're doing Plato. So the science, the science of moral philosophy is the science of the truths of what makes for a healthy, flourishing soul. And isn't it interesting? We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be so silly as to pretend that you can do anything with your body. Well, we might sometimes in practice do that, but we wouldn't be so silly as to really think you can do anything with your body or eat anything, ignore exercise, and still expect to have a healthy body. Well, just as surely, there's a nature of the soul, and there's a way by what it is. It's, it's it amazingly crafted and designed. The soul, which is much easier to much harder, pardon me, to talk about. There's much more there to the soul than there is to the body. We think that the body, and, and rightly so, the body is just so astounding in so many ways. Every now and then I love to just kind of stop and go <laughs> and realize, what in the world is going on? I mean, I mean this, it's, it's just, you just, you just have to stop and wonder. To not stop and wonder at that is it, 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 to be missing something. But it's just true that this is as nothing compared to our soul. Socrates and Plato saw it very clearly. And they insisted, are we so silly as not to be putting our fundamental attention on the health of our soul, which is to cultivate virtue? All right, so today's issue, Socrates, 
Plato wants to build the case for us, now that we know something about what the virtues are, they want to take up the point of, is it really worthwhile, is it really worth all the difficulty and all the suffering to be just? Is it really the case that every just man and only just men are happy? Is it really the case that every just man and only just men are happy? And they are absolutely certain of it. And they try to explain that. And, 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 the, and, and the, this, this masterpiece is set up where the disciples of Socrates say to him, we're going to build as strong a case as we can as to why it doesn't make sense to be just. So that you have to really show us that it is always and everywhere really the only human life that's worth living. Understand that properly. All human lives are worthy and worthwhile, but ultimately human life is worth living because we are made for and called to the virtuous life. Is it really the case that those are the lives that are, as it were, the successful human lives that have become the only thing that they were designed to be? The only way in which they will be happy and fulfilled and at peace and be able to have real relationships. So the first thing we have to do is build the case against it. Here's the case against it. I'm going to kind of summarize it and, 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 and have you peek at, it, peek at a text. The Socrates disciples make the case to him that the unjust life is happier, particularly if the unjust man is clever. They paint a picture and they say, can't the clever unjust man do the following? And I mean, and, and th you know, certain things never change. You look around the world and you think, well, this seems to be a pretty strong case. If you're, if you're clever and unjust, can't you excel at getting away with doing pretty much anything you want to do? And you, have to, you have to be clever. And so they say, well, look, we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about the knuckle-headed unjust man. <laughs> we're going to talk about the clever unjust man so that we're really talking about the real deal. So take the clever unjust man. What is he going to be, what's he going to be good at doing? He's going to really, behind closed doors, he's going to do whatever he wants to. When push comes to shove, when the camera is rolling, he's going to look good. And he's going to make sure, and they said, they said, here, won't this be the really clever one? You be unjust, but then you have a reputation of being just. Isn't that just zing zing? I mean, it doesn't, then, then you really get everything. I mean, you, really, you get to do anything you want to. Not all these rules about, you're not allowed to do that. I know you want to do that, but you're not allowed to do that. If you're going to be just, you have to constantly be disciplining that. That's all for the birds. We get to do what we want, but then if you're smart, get, people won't know that you're doing that. You won't get caught. You get the cookies, and you're popular. And it certainly seems in any case that some humans succeed in filling that role, don't they? From last week's quotations, it's not on this week's, but last week's quotations, if you happen to have it, number three, from Thrasymachus, I referred to in the question-answer period last time, says, and this is where that case is being made, a person of great power outdoes everyone else. It's kind of a chilling line that's being asserted. This is, this is by someone who's making the opposite case from, from Socrates. A person of great power outdoes everyone else. I'm saying, you really want to be, the person of great power is the one who will be happy. He'll make sure people think he's just, but he doesn't fiddle around obeying the rules himself because that's for the weak. I mean, this is, this is, strong, this is strong stuff. This will be said again by certain very prominent modern philosophers that the, the strong do what they want to. And they're smart about how doing what they want to. Isn't this kind of human flourishing at it? At, not everyone can achieve it, but if you can, isn't that, isn't that real cool? All right. Just to, just, to, just to put the finishing touches on this one, there's a famous story of what's called the Ring of Gyges. G-Y-G-E-S, the Ring of Gyges. They bring up the Ring of Gyges. The Ring of Gyges is a very simple ancient story. The, little, the, the, the young teenage boy 
uh, trying to find the lost sheep, goes down into a little underground cave. He's down there looking for a sheep, and lo and behold, he sees something, a, a ring. A ring shimmering there. He picks it up. Lo and behold, you see this, this is a root of certain other stories in certain ways. And um, if you put on that ring, you become invisible. And then these, here, here Glaucon building this case to Socrates says, look, let's be frank. Let's take a lot of those people that you call just and let's give them the ring of Gyges where they become invisible. Now let's see what they do, Socrates. All those just people of yours that keep the rules, right? Now you put on the ring of Gyges where no one will ever know what they do. Now what are they going to do? Won't they do some naughty things? And he gives some examples of naughty things that the person in the story who got the ring of Gyges, let's just say he didn't think he just had one wife anymore. There it is. Okay, but no one ever, no one ever knows. So isn't it the case that you only are just if you feel that there'll be a problem if people realize that you're not? Which makes, if that's the case, then isn't it the case that the justice isn't something really desirable in itself. It's just desirable because if people think you are it, then certain good things might happen to you. But that brings us back to then, isn't the best option to be so clever that you both choose to do anything you want and make sure you have the reputation and you get all the cookies? Are we together? All right, so let's take a look at um, quotation number one. Glaucon. Glaucon is the disciple of Socrates who is pushing him to try to make the point that, that we want Socrates to make also. Where do you put justice? Socrates, I myself put among the finest goods as something to be valued by anyone who's going to be blessed, blessed with happiness, both because of itself and because of what comes from it. So Socrates here wants to say justice is something that's good both in itself and because good fruits come from it. Emphasis there on in itself, choice-worthy in itself, even if not, no, there weren't all the other nice things that come along from it as results of it. Glaucon, <laughs> oh, tongue-in-cheek, that's not most people's way of thinking. They'd say that justice belongs to the onerous kind and is to be practiced for the sake of the rewards and popularity that come from a reputation for justice, but is to be avoided because of itself as something burdensome. All right, so, so you see how this has been set up. Socrates, in response to this, basically says, wow, you all have really given me a, a, a tough pitch to hit. But I suppose if we can do this, then we really will have seen what we wanted to see. So now we want to look at, and here I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm going, to, I'm going to move ahead. That right there is happening in the earlier book, especially book two, setting up the whole problem. And then the, that actually, the setup of that problem came before they even went through and went through what the different cardinal virtues are. But going through the different virtues and making a few other great detours into Plato's cave and learning a few things about education and so forth and so on, boop, we pop out at book nine where now the final major arguments are going to be made that the just life is happier. And I'm going to choose two of the main three that are given. And in that, we're going to see some neat points. And that's going to be what we do. First argument, that what did we arguing? That it is worthwhile to be just. That the just life is worthy in itself always and everywhere. That the just man is always happier. That you are happy to the extent that you are just. First argument comes from a comparison of cities. He compares what he calls the unjust city. This, this follows upon how we have set up the city, the civil society, as a place to learn the different virtues. So he's going to compare an unjust city. So we're going to look at what Socrates calls in the unjust city and then the just city and say which city would be a, quote, happier place to be. So we're just going to, we're going to say he takes a while to paint these pictures, but we're basically going to move right to the conclusion. What does he say the happiest city would be? The happiest city would be the just city. And here are the, here are the characteristics that he thinks that we would find there. Remember how and, you know, the last time there's three main parts of the city is there's three main parts of the soul. There's the guardians or rulers, there's the soldiers, and then there's kind of the working class, you call them the merchants, the many. Also are the money makers. All right, so in the happy city, 
in the just city? What, what are the characteristics of this just city? The guardians are wise. And what especially do they do? What do the wise do? The wise rule for the sake of those they're ruling. Incredibly beautiful point, a very simple point, a, 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 a shamefully rare thing, it seems at times, that the just, the wise rule for the sake of the ruled. So he said, isn't it going to be the case when you have just rulers? Is this not going to be a more flourishing, peaceful, happy place? First of all, because of the rulers, being wise, will use that wisdom to put everything in its place for the sake of those that they are serving by their ruling. He points out that the soldiers will be courageous. The masses will be moderate, following the wise ruling of the rulers. There's no fear. He likes this point. This is a, this is a place where there's not fear. Why? None seek that which is not theirs. When people seek to take what is not theirs, this always generates fear and pain. But here, where people don't seek what is not theirs, there are too many negatives, they, there's no fear. There's no fear in the society. So note, note how right off the bat, you just upon hearing those, Socrates is thinking, if we have ears to hear, it's kind of obvious, wow society where you have just rulers, and each of the other parts of the city is doing what it should be. That's isn't that what happiness looks like? Or in any case, that's what you'd call a happy city. Compare that to an unhappy city. What does he call, what does he picture as the archetype of an unhappy city? The most unjust of cities is where you have a tyrant. Who, what most of all is a tyrant? Someone who rules for his own private gain. Someone whose own desires are incredibly selfish. He has sought ruling for the sake of power. And getting that power, he uses it for its own, his own end. So the way Socrates would put it is the worst man, the man least fit to rule, is the one who is ruling. I mean, right off the bat, and this is, this is going to be powerful then when we come to the, to, the, to the soul, when that which is least fit to rule, rules, Everything's going to be out of place. Talk about the opposite of everything being as it should be. You're going to have bad laws. You're going to have strife, conflict, and fear. One of the key points here, and this is a particular theme for us, is he says this city is characterized by slavery. There is a real enslavement in this city. Why? Here's what I want to say slavery is, and we're going to come back to this and use this a couple times today. Slavery, a couple ways we can put it, is when that which should rule does not rule. When that which should not be ruling is ruling, that's slavery. And that which should be ruled is superordinated, is put on top, and everything is out of place. Nothing achieves its own proper good. And slavery is when things can't achieve their own proper good. And so here he says, the unjust city will be most characterized by slavery. Let's take a look at quotation number two. In truth then, in whatever some people may think, a real tyrant is really a slave. Compelled to engage in the worst kind of fawning, slavery, and pandering to the worst kind of people. He's so far from satisfying his desires in, in, in any way that it's clear, if one happens to know that one must study his whole soul, that he's in the greatest need of most things and truly poor. And if indeed his state is like that of the city he rules, then he's full of fear convulsions and pains throughout his life. And it is like it, isn't it? Another way, ladies and gentlemen, of, of focusing on, on slavery, one's true desires cannot be fulfilled. In the city, the true desires of the city are not fulfilled because that which is ruling does not know how to rule, is ruling for himself, and everything's out of place. 
All right, let's flip over now and take a look at how do we compare that to men. And here we're going to see this, the beautiful point, all right, the just man is going to be like the just city. And now we have set up how we can see just how happy he is. What's going on in the just man? By analogy, the right part rules, and because the right part rules, all is in harmony. What's the right part reason? In the just man, a just man is a man who lives by wisdom. Now remember, again, it, it's all the virtues always go together. The just man lives according to the wisdom of reason, putting everything in its place. The right part rules, so all are in harmony. He possesses the other virtues also. He has nothing to fear, for he is free within himself. We'll talk about this freedom a little bit more as we proceed. The unhappiest of men is like unto that unhappy city who is the unjust man. How does Socrates most of all describe this man? One in whom, to quote, erotic love rules. Erotic love rules is the most obvious example for him of a man whose soul is like the city ruled by a tyrant. For erotic love, unordered by the wisdom of reason, is a tyrant that will direct all things to its own selfish satisfaction, and all else will be ruined. He is a slave within himself, he can never do what he most wants to do. I want to talk about that phrase for just a moment. I think this is very important. This is, this, this, this is Socrates. This soul that is like the city ruled by the tyrant is one where what is lowest, in the tyrant, the, a tyranny is where that which is lowest is ruling. A selfish, bad man rules in a bad city. In this unjust soul, the lowest desire is ruling. And he says, this as a tyranny is in fact a slavery. So the soul of a man where his basest passions rule is a slavery. Now what again, is our, what do we see particularly is the case in a slavery? Your truest desires cannot be fulfilled. And we can see that in this tyrannical soul, this unjust man, in two ways. And this goes back to the point I told you that I was going early on. He doesn't get the higher desires. What desire, when I say he never gets to fulfill his own true desires? He doesn't get his higher desires for the base part is ruling. The base part always hates the higher things and pushes them aside. So the higher parts of the soul are not cultivated. The higher desires of man do not get fulfilled. And, that, and, and, that, and now the real paradox, even the desires that he's living for aren't really fulfilled either. Even the desires he's living for aren't really fulfilled either. And so, slavery, you don't get what you want. Your true desires, all of them, don't get fulfilled. Let's take a look at the next quotation here, number three. Then if, a man, if man and city are alike, mustn't the same structure be in him too? And mustn't his soul be full of slavery and unfreedom? With the most decent parts enslaved, and with a small part, the maddest and most vicious as their master. The, n n note this, this neat comparison that keeps going back and forth. He's so much about ruling. Ruling, Frank, is so godly. It's so beautiful. Who or what is capable of ruling? Where is the man who is capable of ruling in a civil society who will 
unselfishly and wisely look to the good of others, and therefore he alone is the one who can put all in their place. It's hard for us to picture on such a great scale. We can scale back, by the way, and I might put it to you this way. Who is the father who in his own home, his entire life is about how can I order things in this household for their happiness? It takes someone of substantial wisdom and power to be able to do that. If there's someone that doesn't have those characteristics, then all is topsy-turvy. So now go, go, inside, go inside the soul. God has given us reason. Aristotle isn't directly going to put, refer to as God has given it, but we, we've, got this, we've got this reason. I can say to you, God has given us this reason, this highest power. That is the only power that can rule rightly when it sees the truth and rules in view of that. When that is not done, then our soul is a wreck. And then the maddest and most vicious, in fact, is the master. And then to top it off, ladies and gentlemen, quotation number four is downright chilling. Are you ready? Perhaps the worst of it is this. So someone with a tyrannical nature lives his whole life without being friends with anyone. Always a master to one man or a slave to another in never getting a taste of either freedom or true friendship. Socrates isn't fiddling around here, but he's talking about the reality. The reality is the unjust man is the one he's talking about. The unjust man cannot have friendship. Do people live their lives this way? Let's turn to the second argument which is not absolutely un, un, unrelated to the first, but brings out another beautiful aspect that will, that will complement it um, very nicely. But let me, let me wrap up by saying this. True freedom. What is true freedom? The power to live the good life. The power to fulfill all those deep, real desires that we have as humans. That is true freedom. You see how that's, that, that, that's what he's saying here of the just man is the one who alone is free, who has, by discipline, in putting courageously his wisdom into effect, he's able to fulfill all of the needs, all of the true desires of human nature. This is freedom. This the just man alone has. Those in whom reason does not rule rightly, according to wisdom, do not have that. Virtue confers freedom. All right, second argument, that the just, just life is better. The, 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 the introductory point is going to be a little bit strange, but then we're going to get to, to it, it, it's, you, it, well, it is what it is. Let me not apologize for it and just say it. It's from the ability to judge pleasures. This is an argument from the ability to judge pleasures. The argument's a little bit strange. Don't sweat the argument unduly, though I think you'll be able to see it. And then we want to talk a bit about pleasures. From ability to judge pleasures. This is the way the argument goes. You can just let this flow, flow over you. There are three kinds of pleasures, says Socrates, one corresponding to each part of the soul. There's the pleasures of reason. There's the pleasure of honor or victory. That's the one that goes with the soldierly part, the spirited part of the soul. And then there's the pleasures of sense and of body. Now our next point is that the philosopher or the just man, and Socrates uses these terms interchangeably. <laughs> what he mean, the reason that he does that is because the philosopher is the lover of wisdom. If you're truly a lover of wisdom, then you live justly. Right? You, can't, you, can't, you don't earn the name philosopher just by getting a degree. For Socrates, you're a philosopher if you truly love wisdom, and if you love wisdom, you will be just. So those terms are interchangeable for him. So our philosopher, our just man, he says, his judgment about pleasure can be most trusted. His judgment about pleasure can be most trusted. Well, he goes on to say, what does the philosopher or just man say about pleasure? He will hold that the pleasures of reason 
are the best. Now, of course, the pleasures of reason, the pleasures of the highest part, are the pleasures of justice. So therefore, the just life is best. Boom. There's the argument. It's, it's, it's a very simple one. He's just saying, look, you've got different people that will argue as to which life is better. And what he's saying is this, whose judgment about the good life are you going to trust? So, of course, the, the, the whole thing here is going to turn on our second premise that you can most of all trust the philosopher's judgment. Now, you all might be inclined to accept that. But watch how Socrates defends this, and we're going to see a couple of interesting things here. So how do we defend that the philosopher slash just man is the best at judging pleasures? Well, he says the key way, and this is what he puts most of his attention into, of judging pleasures is from one's experience. How experienced are we in pleasures? So he's going to argue the just man, the philosopher, is most experienced in pleasures. And that's why you can trust his judgment most. He says, there will be others who will say that the pleasures of honor and victory are best. And there are others who will say that the pleasures of sense are the best. But here's the neat point. He says, it's actually only the just man who knows all three. So he is the only one who can compare them all and knows their real hierarchy. When Joe Sixpack, and this is my name for someone who lives for bodily pleasures, when Joe Sixpack insists that bodily pleasures are the good life. We need to ask ourselves, based on what is this judgment being made? For often, the very sad reality is, he knows little else. So the point here is, here's the key principle. That's a very, that's a very practical one for us to experience the higher pleasures of human life is difficult and requires much. The lower pleasures are low-hanging fruit that are available fundamentally to all. The higher pleasures of humanity, and, 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 you can, and we cannot, why, why is it so? Well, we don't have an opportunity to perhaps do justice to that. At this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, d doesn't it seem to make sense? Perhaps, and we can talk about it in the question and answer if you want. But here, the higher pleasures are not just there to be had easily. They need to be cultivated. And it's precisely the just man, the philosopher, who has cultivated those higher pleasures and now is in a situation where he understands them all and can thus make the best judgment. Let's take a look at our next quotation here. Therefore, those who have no experience of reason or virtue, but are always occupied with feasts and the like, are brought down and then back up to the middle, as it seems, and wander in this way throughout their lives, never reaching beyond this to what is truly higher up, never looking up at it or being brought up to it. There's so much great language in here you have to watch, just so you know something that Socrates was saying to you right there that you might not have recognized it. He says, never looking up at it or being brought up to it. He's saying he won't even listen to a good teacher. He won't raise his eyes, nor will his eyes be raised by another, neither one. And so they aren't filled. <laughs> this is chilling. If you've ever read St. Augustine, I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is on the level of St. Augustine kind of stuff. And so they aren't filled with that which really is and never taste any stable or pure pleasure. Isn't that a chilling line to say of a human being? 
Instead, they always looked down at the grounds like cattle, and with their heads bent over the dinner table, they feed, fatten, and fornicate. To outdo others in these things, they kick and butt them with iron horns and hoofs, killing each other because their desires are insatiable. Very important line. Talk about slavery, to have desires that will not be fulfilled. For the part that they are trying to fill is like a vessel full of holes, and neither it nor the things they are trying to fill it with are among the things that really are. Isn't isn't that that just an incredibly powerful image of, and we're going to listen to their judgment about what's more important? All they know is the lower things. I go on to 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 the next quotation here, number six. Then can't we confidently insert that those desires of even the money making and honor loving parts? All right, now this is this is a little this is just a little bit more tricky to get the language. I, I'll tell you the point. This is the part where he's going to say, "We've already I've already said it. I've stolen my own thunder." But watch Socrates say say brilliantly how those that just stay with either of the lower two levels will not even get them. So watch this. And can we confidently assert that those desires of even the money-loving and honor-loving parts that follow knowledge and argument, in other words, are done according to reason, and pursue with their help those pleasures that reason approves, will attain the truest pleasures possible for them because they follow truth, and the ones that are most their own if indeed what is best for each thing is most its own. Therefore, when the entire soul follows the philosophic part, God-given reason, growing in wisdom, when the whole entire soul follows the philosophical part and there's no civil war in it, each part of it does its own work exclusively and is just. And in particular, it enjoys its own pleasures, the best and truest pleasures possible for it. But when one of the other parts gains control, won't be able to secure its own pleasure and will compel the other parts to pursue an alien and untrue pleasure. Was that, was that too, too uh, or were you able to kind of, uh, 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 able to see that? It, it's only when we are, fi- I mean, I, I could gloss it this way. As Christians, only when you follow God's law, which of course is nothing other than an expression of the true order of things, can we achieve all of the desires that we naturally are made to enjoy. When when we follow reasons grasping and reason wisely with discipline rules. Isn't that neat? All right. So next up here is this, uh, along the very same lines, is this, is this beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, challenging phrase. And this is where I want to say this is something very practical for us, not just kind of a, ooh, what a neat point, but something that we can apply to ourselves. The notion of being inexperienced in pleasure. He's just told us that the wiser just man is experienced in pleasure. And I say to you what I most love as as what challenge can we take from this for ourselves, from this, from this pagan who has, in God's providence, seen so much about human nature. I say, he says to us, O oh, Christian, are you as experienced in pleasure? Taking pleasure now in a broad sense of each part of the soul has its proper pleasures. Are you experienced in pleasure as you should be? Or are you inexperienced? Quotation number seven. Is it any surprise then if those who are inexperienced in the truth have unsound opinions about lots of other things as well, or that they are so disposed to pleasure, pain, and the intermediate state that when they descend to the painful, they believe and really are in pain, but that when they ascend from the painful to the intermediate state, they firmly believe that they have reached fulfillment and pleasure. In other words, he's saying they've only experienced a very small part of the gamut 
and they think, oh, if you swing from over here to where you had some pain, or you're having pain and now you're not having pain, ah, that must be what it's all about. Or you go from not having pain to having some bodily pleasure, ah, that's, that, that's the big swing there. That's, that's, the, that's the range they're working in. But they are inexperienced in pleasure. They're inexperienced in pleasure. And so are deceived when they compare pain to painlessness, just as they would be if they compared black to gray without having experienced white. That's one of my favorite lines in the, in, in, in the Republic. I like to ask myself, have I experienced white? If you haven't experienced white, you don't even know what gray and black are. But if you experienced white, you know what everything is. He gives us a, something of a life plan, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a full life plan, but it's, it's he makes a few great suggestions to us in quotation number eight. And let's just take a peek at that because it's, it's practical. There won't a person of understanding, all right, so, so ha, ha, having seen these points, our, our, our argument is basically done. Whose judgment are we going to trust? You're going to trust the just man, the one whose soul is in order, the one who alone is able to experience all human pleasures. And again, key, key principle there, and this will have practical import for us here as we, as, as we wrap up. What are we going to do to become more experienced in pleasure? It doesn't happen by accident. How do we go for the higher fruit? What practices are we going to institute so as to come to know white is the point here. There won't a person of understanding direct all his efforts to attaining that state of his soul. If he sees these things that we've been saying, and we trust the, the just man, the wise man's judgment, who has told us that it is the pleasures of justice that truly are the greatest pleasures, and that when we put all in its place, you can experience most truly the lower ones too, all in God's, according to God's providential plan. So what's a person going to do? Won't a person direct all his efforts to attaining that state of his soul? Well, isn't it beautiful? Here's this pagan. Will we not, seeing these truths, attain, direct all of our efforts to attaining justice, to putting this order into our souls, to becoming experienced in pleasure? First, he'll value the studies that produce it and despise the others. Right, we're Deacon Sabatino here. He'd love to take the opportunity to say, this is why we're studying these things. Because in fact, a key step is we've got to understand these things. Right? I mean, really, it, it's so good to be together with you tonight. Right? We could have been home doing whatever. And there were great important things to do at home. But to spend a few minutes raising our mind and considering what is at stake and how dramatic human life is and whether we get this straight or not, we've, we've got to be begin by studying these things. That's a key way to draw ourselves out from our inexperience is nothing else to have heard, oh my goodness. <laughs> There's a such thing as being inexperienced in pleasure, and I'm kind of thinking right now that might be me. <laughs> Studying allows us to do that. That's a great step. Second, he won't entrust the condition and nurture of his body to the irrational beast within or turn his life in that direction, but neither will he make health his aim or assign first place to being strong, healthy, and beautiful unless he happens to acquire moderation. That's the virtue as a result. Is, isn't, isn't this brilliant? It's, it's so balanced. You're, not, you're going to be attentive to your body, but attentive to your body precisely as part and parcel of gaining the virtues. Health, bodily health is important as part of the project of growing in temperance and courage. We're interested in, in bodily health so that we can better be just, not so that we have strong muscles and we look good, for goodness sake but so that we can do good things. Right? And so, I mean, note how incredibly balanced that is. Rather, it's clear that he will always cultivate, <laughs> check this line out. If you're interested in, 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 in exercising, in eating well, here's a great word from Plato for us. He will cultivate the harmony of his body for the sake of the consonants in his soul. That's a good reason to take good care of our body.
so that it can serve our soul. Now we're cooking with gas. And there's a good reason. We should be concerned about what we eat, not because it's most important to us to live 95 years, but because we want to have a body that can serve a soul that's got a lot of work to do, as it were. Will he also keep order and consonance in his acquisition of money? Isn't it interesting, ladies and gentlemen? He goes right for the throat. He, certain things never change. And then he goes right on. And by the way, what's one of the main areas that we go off, that we go off the chain? Or we, get too, we get too concerned about wealth. Will he also keep order and consonance in his acquisition of money with that same end in view? Remember, the only good reason to have, good reason to have money is for the sake of being just is for the sake of taking care of things we need and helping other people and rendering to others what is due. That's a good reason to have money. Or even though he isn't dazzled by the size of the majority into accepting their idea of blessed happiness, will he increase his wealth without limit and so have unlimited evils? No, he won't. All right, we, got, we, 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 we have to wrap up. So quickly, more broadly, on, on a life plan. I mean, look, look, look at the beautiful ones right there. Value our, the studies like that we're doing right now that are going to help us understand these things better. Regarding the body, not turning to the beastly pleasures, but disciplining them and cultivating health and strength and beauty, all for the sake of virtue. Being careful about money. Another one that he doesn't mention, just broaden out, cultivate the higher pleasures, especially in our homes as things darken around us, especially with our children, we can form them to enjoy things that matter. If they don't learn to enjoy things that matter, they will go for low-hanging fruit. So you can't just say no to the low. We have to cultivate the higher. I just have to give you this wrap-up. In, in conclusion, Socrates says in the last book of the Republic, by the way, I hope I've shown that the justice is worth choosing and living and suffering for just in itself. But you know what? By the way, it also gets all the cookies too. Because you know what whole thing about the clever guy was a bunch of malarkey. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't happen. And let, I'm just going to read you the last two quotes. And isn't it true what he says here? And this is just played up. Then first, he says in reference to the gods, and then in reference to other men. When you're really just, people are going to know it. And it makes a difference. It was worth choosing for its own sake anyway, but just so you know, says Socrates, get a load of this. Then we must suppose that the same is true of a just person who falls into poverty or disease or some other apparent, isn't that amazing, apparent evil. Namely, this will end well for him. Either during this life or afterwards, for the gods never neglect anyone who eagerly wishes to become just and who makes himself as much like a god as a human being can by adopting a virtuous way of life. Isn't that astounding? And then as an addendum, he says, and finally, by the way, what about from human beings? What does a just person get from them? Or if we're to tell the truth, isn't this what happens? Aren't clever but unjust people like runners who run well for the first part of the course but not for the seconds? They leap away sharply at first, but they become ridiculous by the end and go off uncrowned with their ears drooping on their shoulders like those of exhausted dogs, while true runners, on the other hand, get to the end, collect the prizes, and are crowned. And isn't it also generally true of just people that towards the end of each course of action, association, indeed their whole life, they enjoy a good reputation? and collect the prizes from other human beings. Thank you, gentlemen and ladies, for your attention. Thank you. Hello. Um, thank you. 
Now, you mentioned that there are three types of people. There are the rulers and, and then the military and then there are the masses and all. And, um, and the rulers are the ones who... I'm just trying to figure out, does he, does Socrates believe that everybody could be a ruler? I mean, can the masses move up or is there some inequity, basic inequity in That's some people? Question. That's a reasonable question. The, the, and, and these are difficult and controversial issues throughout the history of philosophy. It, uh, it's, it's not controversial what Plato thinks on that, however. He does not think that everybody can rule. And here, and here just is an interesting point that is worth considering. He would say to, to someone, it, something to think about as regards democracy, Socrates would, slash Plato would say this, to rule in a state takes remarkable wisdom. Remarkable wisdom is not widespread. So do we want to entrust these things to the choice of the many. Th this is a point that needs to be reckoned with. And, and so ultimately he, he comes down more in the area of all are equally human, but, but there are some that are going to be naturally more fit to rule, and, uh, and they should. That is his view. All right? I, I, that raises a, a host of questions, but that is the answer to your, to your question, which is a good one. Thank you. The question I asked you during the break, um, is it, is it po possible to experience the virtues and, and for the rulers and all to, to function with wisdom without grace and the Holy Spirit? I really, I really appreciate your, your, your asking that because that, that, that this is one of the funny things here of the Institute of Catholic Culture. We're studying Plato and we think with the fathers of the church that a special gift has been given to us by this natural wisdom that has been expressed so well by these men. It's, it's, it's never complete and, they, and it also there will be with an admixture of error. But the thing particularly that they don't have an appreciation of is how there is supernatural grace available to help us do this. Now, I, I think it's, it's, it's still remarkable that they saw, just by the power of reason, that God calls us, or that our nature demands that we be this way. The only way to be happy as a human is to be living virtuously. And then they, imagine what it was like for them, they, they saw how very rare it was. And they had to scratch their heads and they don't have an answer. They don't understand original sin. We as Christians have the tools, first of all, to understand all this much better. But most importantly, to the point of your question, we recognize that we have supernatural grace to help us do this. And, and if we're, what is more practical, frankly, as regards the very things we were just talking about, of how we're going to become more experienced in pleasure? how we're going to transform our desires and grow in virtue than to begin by praying and simply asking God to empower us to grow these virtues in us and that we turn to the sacraments of the church which are the power source whereby we'd be able to do this and we go to adoration such uh, such a thing truly would, would have astounded would have astounded someone like Plato and Socrates. We'd just be guessing to say what they would say about it, but just that we can go to the source, the very one that, as he says, virtues are an imitation of. We have the life of Christ as this perfect model and inspiration in addition to the grace of the Holy Spirit in doing it. I mean, this is this, the beautiful way that Christianity is the perfect fulfillment we're getting a question online from Harold in Maryland, and he asks, when Socrates or Plato says that adopting a virtuous way is like making yourself like a god as much as humanly possible, isn't he saying that his idea of a god is different from the traditional idea among the Greeks of self-seeking, essentially unjust gods and goddesses? He, absol he absolutely is. And I mean, this is an amb ambiguous and funny thing. Among, among, among pagans, there's always this, this, this funny mixture. And there is this higher strain that clearly saw, through natural reason, something very true about the divine. 
and recognize that the highest way to be human is precisely to try to approximate that. I'll just tell you, I was in, in, in reading the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle. He's particularly strong on this, where when he comes to talking about the height of human life is contemplation. And he says, to truly live a contemplative life is a life that is just beyond human. It's not really something you can live as a human. And I thought, here I was in Front Royal of the Dominican nuns just a few miles away, living what Aristotle would have called a life that's just beyond the human in being so godlike. So, so, so these, these great philosophers, again, they didn't understand everything about the divine, but they had a clear vision of the nobility of the divine, yes, and how what is best in us is precisely an imitation of it. Then would you see a parallel with what Plato Socrates argued in Republic with Christ's plea to first seek God's kingdom and his righteousness? Beautiful. Thank you so much for saying that. Seek first the kingdom of God and its justice and all these things will be rendered unto you. Perfect. This on a natural level, not completely, but, 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 but this Plato is seeing this. I, I, I'm so glad you said that. So glad you said that. Is the, do you see that connection of how Socrates said? When you put justice first, when you put first things first, each will be in its place, and you have, you have the whole. Then you have everything. Is it seek for? Isn't it beautiful? God has been teaching us these things in certain ways already, and then He comes and He brings it out even more fully. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Dr. Kodak. Yeah. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.